many of you have ever had the privilege of sitting through a church business meeting? How many of you have ever had the privilege of moderating a church business meeting? Um, one of the things that, that happens in a church business meeting, you may know this, you may not, is there is an officer in the church called a church clerk who records everything that happens in those meetings, that record the minutes of the meeting so that churches, when that works well, churches could actually look back at their history and they could determine exactly what the majority voted for in April of 1973 if they wanted to, which to me is, is kind of funny because Baptists don't always do a great job of understanding church history. Not that we don't understand the history of our own local congregations, but we don't necessarily know a lot about Christian history. We kind of think that the timeline of Christian history went from the Apostle Paul to Billy Graham to the guy who started Chick-fil-A, and that's pretty much everything that God has done in the history of the world. So uh, you could be forgiven for not knowing the story of who is a man who is, to my mind, one of the most interesting figures in church history from the 20th century, a young man by the name of Evan. Now, Evan's story begins in Wales in 18, either 1876 or 1878, where he was born to a family of poor coal miners. In fact, he started, Evan started working in the coal mines when he was 11 years old and as a teenager survived an explosion in the coal mines. But everybody that knew Evan as a child knew that he was destined for something more significant than merely living in a coal mine because everybody seemed to think that Evan had almost this unique individual connection to God. He was thought of as something as a prophet or even a visionary. So nobody was surprised when as a young man, Evan went off to seminary and, and started preaching and became almost immediately successful and found himself in the middle of a great revival that took place in Wales from 1904 to 1905. And the Welsh Revival was, uh, during that time period, the biggest news story probably, at least in that part of the world, if not the world at large, as it's estimated that 100,000 people came to be converted to Christ during the Welsh Revival, during a period of less than a year. And if you read the history of those meetings, they almost sound like something right out of the book of Acts. There were places in Wales where the pubs had to shut down because nobody was going to get drunk anymore. There were entire sport teams, uh, rugby teams, and cricket teams that almost lost everything because nobody cared about sports anymore because everybody was so committed to the revival. And the most famous story from the Welsh revival is that the horses that worked in the coal mines, they no longer knew how to work because nobody was cussing them anymore. And they were so used to being cussed to work that everybody's language had been cleaned up. And at the center of all of this, this, this great move of God in Wales was... Evan. And as a young man, Evan was preaching sermons that were unlike anything anybody in Wales had heard up to that point. They were passionate. They didn't treat God as just an abstract theology subject, but they treated God as if He really mattered, as if He was personal. His sermons were direct. And even though he had a lot of critics who said that the real draw to his meetings were the singing sisters that were with him, uh, Evan was certainly charismatic even though he may have been controversial and may have been, at that time, the most famous person in the United Kingdom. And it seemed that all the world would come to Christ through Evan's preaching, and he even had visions that said exactly that would happen. And yet it didn't happen. In fact, the story of Evan's life is much more human than it is divine because the pressure of being at the center of that much attention pretty much caused the mind of Evan Roberts to collapse. And in 1906, he had a complete nervous breakdown. 
and went into seclusion. And this young preacher who had the world on the edge of its seat never came out of hiding except to speak for just a few moments at his father's funeral. And it seemed like there was this great revival that was getting ready to break out in Wales in the early 20th century, and it all went wrong. And historians have looked back on that and said maybe Evan Roberts should have surrounded himself with better people. They've looked back on it and said maybe he shouldn't have had such high expectations on himself and he should have tried to do so much himself. And we can wonder about why that went wrong. But I would want to ask you today not about the Welsh revival because that's all history. I would want to ask you about your walk with God. And what about our church? And what about the revivals we have been a part of? Because face it, revivals in a Baptist church, they are every bit as common in our calendar as a potluck supper, right? And most of the time, they're just about as bland too, aren't they? We schedule revival a couple of times a year, put it on the church sign, let the Holy Ghost know when He's supposed to be here and what He's supposed to do. And then we never really seem to have a genuine revival, do we? And nobody expects us to have a revival. Nobody's surprised when it doesn't happen. We beat each other over the head with the admonition, we need revival. And then we never seem to even have it. So as we prepare for revival at our church next week, I would ask you today two simple questions. That is this. Are we prepared for revival if we don't really know what it is? And are we prepared for revival if we don't know why people don't have it? And I want to answer those questions to you today from the story of another revival that went wrong way back in the Old Testament. It's in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter number 24. I want to preach to you this morning on the revival that went wrong. 2 Chronicles chapter 24. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn there. 2 Chronicles chapter number 24. I want you to read the words of God with me today. Now, this is a long passage of Scripture we are going to consider today, so uh, you can just keep your seat. I don't want you to get too overwhelmed this early in the sermon. 2 Chronicles chapter 24, and we'll read down through verse number 22. 2 Chronicles chapter 24 and verse number 1. The words aren't on the screen this morning, so... If you need to buddy up to somebody, just get close. They won't mind. Just don't breathe on too much. Second Chronicles chapter 24, unless you're married, says, verse 1, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba, and Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada got for him two wives, and he had sons and daughters. After this... Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. And he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you act quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada the chief and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony? For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, hath broken into the house of God, and it also used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. So the king commanded, and they made a chest and set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord. And proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring in for the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, laid on Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought their tax. Can you believe that? And dropped it into the chest until they had finished it. And whenever the chest was brought to the king's officers by the Levites, when they saw that there was much money in it, the king's secretary and the officer of the chief priest would come and empty the chest and take it and return to its place. 
Thus they did day after day and collected money in abundance. And the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who had charge of the work of the house of the Lord. And they hired masons and carpenters to restore the house of the Lord, and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the house of the Lord. So those who were engaged in the work labored, and the repairing went forward in their hands, and they restored the house of God to its proper condition and strengthened it. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada, and with it were made utensils for the house of the Lord, both for the service and for the burnt offerings and dishes for incense and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly all the days of Jehoiada. But Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward God and his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. They testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commitments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, He has forsaken you. For they conspired against Him, and by command of the king, they stoned Him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. I trust the Lord to bless our time together in His Word. It's a shame that for us when we read the book of 2 Chronicles that this is kind of part of the flyover portion of the Old Testament. You know, this is the part we just rush through to get to the good stuff in the book of Psalms because there really are some amazing stories of God's faithfulness and God's people at their best and at their worst in the book of 2 Chronicles. So let me just catch you up to where we are here in chapter 24. The long story made very, very short is that in 1 Chronicles we read about the reign of David the king of Israel. And after David dies, he leaves the, the kingdom to his son and his successor Solomon. And Solomon on the one hand is a faithful servant of the Lord who works to rebuild or works to build and erect the temple in Jerusalem that David his father had not been permitted to build. But on the other hand, Solomon is a mess. Solomon has the problem of 999 wives too many. And his wives lead him away from worship of the true God. And because of some sin in Solomon's life, when he dies, the kingdom is split in two. Ten tribes form the kingdom of Israel, and two tribes form the kingdom of Judah. And what you have in the book of 2 Chronicles primarily is the account of the reign of the kings that were over the nation of Judah who were from the line of David. And by and large, most of the kings over Judah here in the book of 2 Chronicles, they are every bit as intelligent and promising as our current crop of presidential candidates, meaning they are not qualified to run for dog catcher, but here they are on the throne anyway. And most of them are leading God's people away from true worship, though there are bright spots of revival. And it seems like there's a bright spot of revival when Joash comes to be king at the ripe old age of seven. Bless his heart, he's still wearing his Ninja Turtle pajamas, and here he is as king over the nation of Judah. But Joash, Joash's story, he's also called Jehoash in the book of 1 Kings, but Joash's story is one that starts uh, with a fair amount of drama and a fair amount of political intrigue. He is the son of King Ahaziah, 
But Hezekiah dies, and the queen mother, Athaliah, realizes in this power gap that this is her opportunity to seize control of the throne for herself, which she does. And she has all of the members of the royal family killed, except for Joash, because Joash is hidden in the temple by the high priest Jehoiada. And when the time is right, Jehoiada, the high priest, he springs the trap on Queen Athaliah and he says, the true king is alive, he's in the temple, the people flock to Joash and make him king, Athaliah is killed and the rest is biblical history. And it seems like in the first part of 2 Chronicles 24 that Joash, as a young man, is going to be the king who leads this incredible revival. As a young man, after he gets married, he starts to invest in the work of the temple. He starts to call the people back to faithful temple worship. By the end of 2 Chronicles chapter number 24, Joash is an idolater who is a long way from God, who is assassinated by his own princes, and who is a man who becomes a living parable of a revival that goes wrong. He is a man who seems to lead a revival that is really going to go somewhere. But the revival runs out of gas and crashes and burns before it ever gets off the runway. So why did that happen? I think this text and this story shows us a collapse of what really looked like a genuine revival. But it also undoubtedly shows us God and His grace pursuing people even as they are not experiencing the fullness of what He has for them. So why is it that people like Joash today can be right on the verge of the greatest blessings that God has to offer them, and yet they still miss them? Why is it that maybe as a church we never fully experience everything that God wants to do here for us and in us? Why is it that we have revivals that go wrong? Today I want to use this text hopefully as a case study of what genuine revival could be, should be, and truly is, but also as a case study of how it is that people miss it. And I hope that you see behind all of this is a God who is pursuing His people and calling them back to Himself no matter how far they've walked away from Him. And I think we can best understand this text of Scripture by looking at three men who are the main players in this text. The first one is Jehoiada, who is the faithful priest. We're introduced to him in chapter number 24, but his story really goes all the way back into chapter number 23. Joash, as the king is a king who comes to the throne as a young man with a lot of potential. Now, he's one of those people who turns out to be nothing but potential, and he never meets his potential. But when he comes to the throne, it seems like he's doing a lot of good. He's leading an almost revival as he is investing in the work of God in the temple. And in the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles, the temple structure is almost symbolic for the work of God and the worship of God's people. So that when the temple is, is being neglected, it's almost as if God is being neglected. When the temple is being invested in and rebuilt, it's almost as if the people are rededicating themselves to the work of the Lord. And that's what's happening here in 2 Chronicles chapter number 24. But we find out that this all falls apart when Jehoiada, the high priest, dies. So you get the sense from 2 Chronicles chapter 24 that the man who really is spinning the wheels, the man who really is engineering this work is Jehoiada. It's not King Joash, but Jehoiada is the real spiritual conscience of the nation of Israel at this time. And his reforms reach back into chapter 23, beginning in verse number 16. And you see that Jehoiada is a man who is committed to temple worship. He's a man who is committed to tearing down idols wherever he can find them. And he is a man who is committed to calling people back to the true and the faithful worship of God. 
And so when revival seems to touch down in the nation of Judah in chapter number 24, when Joash becomes king, it really is this simple. It's because Jehoiada, one man, was committed to doing the right thing. For Jehoiada, revival looked like doing the right thing. He knew that God's people needed to worship in the way that God prescribed, so he pursued it. He knew that idolatry was wicked, so he fought it. He knew that God's people needed to repent, so he taught them that and he called them to it. And the result in 2 Chronicles chapter 24 and verse number 10 is that God's people caught this vision. They rejoiced at the opportunity to experience the fullness of God. And we see in the life of Jehoiada the very, very simple principle that revival is what happens when God's people do the right thing. And you need to hear that this morning because I know what it's like to be part of a Baptist church. Well, we've had every kind of snake oil salesman pass off every cheap substitute for revival that they can sell us. And I know that we think all of, we have all these different misconceptions in our head about what true revival is and what true revival should be. But friends, revival is nothing more than God's people living out their relationship with God with faithfulness, joy, and consistency. So what some of us have been trained to think today, here's what we're up against. Some of us have been trained to think that revival is really about having these exciting services. You know, as long as the singers and the piano players, as long as they dance at the piano like Jerry Lee Lewis, and if the preacher rips his coat off and he grabs the American flag and runs around the sanctuary, then we know God has met with us. Brother, that's when we've had revival. Friends, I want to tell you, God has not called us to excitement. He has called us to faithfulness. Now, I hope you are excited about what God has done and what He is doing and what He's promised. But whether you're excited or not, the things God has commanded us to do, He expects us to do. And that's what Jehoiada lays hold of here by faith. He says, I know what the right thing is to do. And by God's help, I'm going to do it regardless of how it makes me feel. Yeah. I read this week this great quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's kind of a long quote. But he said, my dear hearers, beware of that godliness which depends upon excitement for its life. Then he said, I do not speak against religious excitement. Men get excited over politics and science and trade. Why should they not be excited about the far weightier things of religion? I would just back up and say, we get excited over football and March Madness. We ought to get excited about Jesus. Spurgeon had a better way of words than that. But then he said this. He said, but still, though you may indulge yourself with it sometimes, do not let it be your element. He said, don't let it be the whole fuel that drives your walk with God. I am afraid that many churches have been revived and revived till they become like big bubbles full of wind, and now they have almost vanished into thin air. What he's saying there is that a faith that is fueled only by excitement, eventually will reach a point where it can't get any bigger and like a bubble, it'll pop and it'll disappear. That's not what Jehoiada has here. What Jehoiada has in this text is faithfulness. Friends, God wants you to be excited. I believe that. But we are being dishonest with the Word of God if we think all there is to true revival and all there is to true faithfulness is excitement. What there is to faithfulness is obedience. Obedience is the marrow of faithfulness. And what we need as God's people is a revival that produces or is produced by day-to-day faithful obedience. And if we have that, then we will have what will look a whole lot like revival. What we call revival really is nothing more than the day-to-day experience of God's people actually living like Christians. And so we've been preaching and saying for years, we need revival, we need revival, we need revival. And yes, maybe we do. And I know what we mean when we say that. Lord, I preach those sermons myself. But what we need are to be New Testament faithful Christians. That's what we need. And so revival for us as God's people is not about getting something new. 
It's not about reaching a higher plane. It's not about reaching a newer debt. It's about living as if we really are who God says we are. It's about doing what God has commanded us to do and believing the promises God has made that we have today, right now in Christ, everything God wants us to have. Listen to what the Bible says to you in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 3. The Apostle Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We don't need to have revival next week to get blessed. We've already got every blessing that God has to give us in Christ. What we need to have revival is to start living like we are blessed as we are. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter 1.3. He said His divine power has granted us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So Sharon Heights Baptist Church, understand me today, you have everything you need at this moment to be what God wants you to be and to do what God wants you to do. You don't need something more exciting. You don't need something deeper. You don't need something higher. You don't need a bigger goosebump on your forearm when the singer hits just the right key of the song that they sang at the special because you asked them to sing it. What you need is to understand God has given you Christ. And in Christ you have every blessing and to start living downstream from what you have in Christ. And to me that looks a lot like revival. So what happens to us is we get so torn up about how we get revival. We think it's this recipe that we have to follow. We've got to pray you know, it's 10% prayer and 20% preaching and 50% worship and 10% of whatever else. I don't even know what percentage that's up to now. But we get all this together, we'll have revival. We say we need, to, we, need, we need to get unified, then we can have revival. We need to start winning souls, we can have revival. We need to have more fellowship and more passionate worship, then we can have revival. And then some people come along and say, well, if we have revival, then we can get unified. But we get revival, that'd fix all of our problems right here. We start winning souls, we have revival. Man, there's no telling what God could do. Friend, listen to me. The Bible commands you to be unified. It tells you to be as unified as God the Son is with God the Father through the power of the Spirit of Christ working in you. The Bible commands that of you. The Bible provides the means for you to obey that command. The Bible commands you to go out and share the gospel with all the world. The Bible commands you to worship in spirit and in truth. The Bible tells you to forgive your enemies. The Bible tells you to lay down your grudges at the foot of the cross, to quit gossiping, and to forgive people for God's sake as He has forgiven Christ, or has forgiven you for the sake of Jesus. The Bible tells you all those things. You don't need revival. You just need to be a Christian. We better move on. So Jehoiada's doing what's right. But then Jehoiada does the worst thing that could have happened. He died. But we can't follow him. He's 130 years old. He's probably ready to go. So he dies in the text and we see through his death the influence that he had had because it's almost like as soon as he's gone, everything falls to pieces. And thankfully we see his son Zechariah and his son may actually be his grandson. Sometimes the Bible will talk about a man's grandson as if he is a son because of family and all that. But his relative, his son or grandson Zechariah stands up and even though it costs him his life, he is faithful to do what's right. These men teach us I think that as individual believers, we can do what's right. We can enjoy the blessings of God. We can be obedient. We can be faithful, even if nobody else around us is. See, what I've heard people do my whole life is this. I say, oh Lord, we need revival. And if those people down at the church, they weren't so cold, but we could have it. Colder than a dog's nose around here. It's drier and cracker juice. But if they just get on fire for the Lord, then we could have revival. 
And so what we do is we blame everybody else for what we don't have. And yet you see in this text two men who take it upon themselves to say, I'm going to be what God wants me to be regardless of what anybody else does. Regardless of how anybody else acts, I'm going to experience what God wants for me in my life. Well, I tell you, preacher, that's all fine and good, but you know, it's just the government. Our nation needs revival. I don't know what we're going to do. Forget the nation. What about you? Forget the Republicans and the Democrats. What is God wanting to do in your heart today? It would do good for some of you this morning when we have an invitation to come to this altar and pour out your heart to God and say, God, I've been blaming my spiritual life on everybody else around me for too long. And Lord, regardless of what you do in Washington and regardless of what you do in Montgomery, even if they don't do away with the 10-cent gas tax, God, I want you to work in my heart. I want you to work in my life. You may not do it in my wife. You may not do it in my husband. You may not do it in my Sunday school class. You may not do it in the choir. You may not do it in the preacher. But God, I want to experience it in my heart. And God, if you would be blessed to move in our church in that way, let it start in me. But God, even if it doesn't go beyond me, Lord, let it include me. The Lord makes this great promise in Isaiah 57. He says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and the heart of the contrite. God said, I am high and holy. I dwell in eternity and there is none like me. But He said, I have chosen to dwell with those individuals who have repented of their sins, who have humbled themselves before me, and I will be with those people. Jehoiada, the faithful priest, is that kind of man. But the next man we're going to talk about, Joash, the fickle king, he is not that kind of man. So let's talk about Joash, our fickle king in this text. For all of the the good that he does, Jehoiada dies, and Joash is left running the kingdom. And it seems that Joash, he's hard to read in this text because he does, just goes out of his way to include everybody in reviving temple worship then he goes out of his way to, to run away from God. It's hard to figure out. I don't think that when this happened, Jehoiada or Joash realized the full impact of Jehoiada's death. I mean, I'm sure that Joash probably went to the funeral and he cried when they sang that Vince Gill song and he probably you know, read the obituary and all this stuff and he didn't realize how this would impact him. But evidently the day came when he had a cabinet meeting with the princes of Judah. And they came in, the Bible says, paying homage to him. They came in with their flattery. And they revealed their hearts which were drawn towards idolatry. And they drew Joash's heart away into idolatry. Now, I can't venture to guess here whether Joash, as he goes into idolatry in these verses, I don't know if he's been changed because of the death of Jehoiada or if the death of Jehoiada revealed what had really been in there the whole time. I think that he's just a fickle, malleable man who never learned to stand on his own feet. But I do know this, that like Jehoiada, there are certain events in all of our lives that shape who we are spiritually. Sometimes they direct us, and sometimes they reveal what's been in us the whole time. Unfortunately, we can't read the story of our lives as clearly as we can read the story of Joash's, can we? We can see where everything went wrong with Joash. We don't always understand where things go wrong in our hearts, do we? Perhaps today some of you 
have seen your spiritual life and your walk with God just fall apart because of what is a genuine crisis. I mean, the death of a mentor and a friend here, that's a crisis. And maybe for you, an unexpected time of grief or suffering or pain has so hurt you that it's impacted your walk with God. Maybe your relationship with the Lord just stopped altogether. Maybe, like Jehoiada, I've seen this a lot of times, maybe it was the death of a parent or a grandparent a patriarch or a matriarch in the family that when they're gone, they were kind of the spiritual rudder for the family. And when they're gone, everybody in the family, their commitment to the Lord just collapses. Maybe you've experienced loss, a good job. Maybe you lost your health and just can't get back. Maybe, maybe those pains of loss, the loss of a marriage or the loss of a spouse to death, maybe that has changed the way you think about the Lord. And now what used to be passionate worship has turned into kind of a burning bitterness. Maybe you've been disappointed by a Christian leader who was not everything that they pretended to be in the pulpit. And you thought, well, if that's all that there is to really serving Jesus, and I don't really need any part of it. Sometimes the crisis moments we experience in life, they derail us from being what God wants us to be. But of course, our hearts being what they are, sometimes things that should be blessings in life keep us from being what God wants us to be. There are some people whose spiritual lives have been ruined because they got a promotion. Some people, the worst thing that could ever happen to their walk with God is for God to give them everything they want. And they would prove that they were just using God to get what they wanted. And then when they had it, they would have no more use for God. I wonder how many people's, how many families' relationship with the Lord Jesus has just been imploded because they found out one of their kids had a little bit of talent on a t-ball field. <laughs> what I do know is that Joash's life is clearly in two parts in this passage of Scripture. There's before the death of Jehoiada, then after the death of Jehoiada. If your life would break down in those parts, where would the dividing line be? What are those events that have shaped you and put you where you are in your relationship with God today? So without Jehoiada present, Joash goes off the rails into idolatry. And we may wonder how this man who built the temp- or rebuilt the temple, invested so much, could so quickly devote himself to idolatry. Well, we need to remember that the human heart being what it is, the fault line between true worship and idolatry runs through every one of our hearts. We're all capable of this. And I think we see the truth about Joash is that he was just fickle. Even though he became king when he was seven years old, he never learned how to lead anything. He never learned how to rule himself. And so whoever had his ear guided the direction that he took. So I don't know if it's fair to say that everything in Joash's past was fake. But you have to wonder, don't you? You know people like this who seem to finally put all their cards on the table and there doesn't seem to be any real spiritual fruit in their life. And you wonder... And we would wonder about Joash. He does so well early on and then it just all falls apart. My goodness, he has a man killed in the temple that he helped rebuild. You think, surely that couldn't have been genuine. I don't know. I do know that in verse 20 there are people that are reaching out to him. Zechariah, the prophet, the priest, he's preaching saying, the Lord is calling you back to repentance. So I wonder if when Joash was a young man taking up all that money, investing all that work, organizing all the plans with the blueprints for a newly remodeled temple hanging in his kingly presidential office. I wonder if all of that was merely just an external show. 
And I wonder if the prophet Zechariah, as he preaches, is really not trying to get through to Joash saying, God is not impressed with an external show of religious activity. God wants your heart to come to true repentance. God wants to change who you are on the inside. God's not just interested in building buildings. He's not just interested in elaborate structures. He's not just interested in our putting in a lot of work so that everybody sees it. He's after who we are on the inside. And I wonder if that's not the message that got Zechariah killed. But I think that's the message that he's preaching because true revivals almost always go wrong when people are derailed by moments of crisis and when people are concerned more about external religion than they are genuine internal repentance. And anytime you have a true revival that occurs in Scripture or in the history of God's people, it happens when God's people move away from mere externalized religion and they seek the Lord in repentance in their hearts. And they get to the point where they say, Lord, we are sick of doing what we've always done. We are sick of having what we've always had. And God, we want to experience You. We want to know You. We do not want to merely put on a show. We do not want to play church. We do not want to act. But we want to get back to what You said in the Word. We want to experience the fullness of the Spirit of God. We want to experience the blessings of Christ. Lord, we do not merely want to show up in our church clothes and think You are impressed. We want to know God for real. And so God, remove anything in us that would keep that from happening. That's what Zechariah is preaching to Joash here in this text of Scripture. But we're a lot like Joash, aren't we? I mean, we really do think that God is impressed with our church clothes. We really do think that God is as easily fooled as everybody else in the church with our hypocrisy. We think that God really doesn't see our absence in our hearts. Friends, if God ever does anything remarkable here, somewhere along the way, God's people are going to get tired of merely playing church. They're going to get tired of playing a game and they're going to start to pursue the Lord from the depths of their heart. And that's what Zechariah, the fiery prophet, is preaching. So we've talked about this revival that goes wrong from the perspective of Jehoiada, the faithful priest. We've talked about it from the perspective of Joash, the very fickle king. Let's talk about it finally today from the perspective of Zechariah, the fiery prophet. Joash is on a collision course with disaster that's brought about by abandoning the work of God, that's brought about by neglecting the Word of God. But you see in the middle of this, God is still pursuing him. Look at verse 19. The Bible says that even though God had brought wrath on them for their guilt, yet He sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. This may not be the most well-known passage of Scripture, but honestly, is there any place in the Bible where you could find a clearer expression of God's heart to His people than that verse? That no matter how many times we fall back into the same patterns of stupid, deceived, idolatrous worship where our hearts are devoted to things other than Jesus, Jesus is always there calling us back to Himself. He's always there pleading and pursuing and trying to woo our hearts. And the best example of that in the text, of course, is Zechariah, the son or grandson of Jehoiada the priest who comes and he preaches faithfully in the temple and then Joash has him killed for that. And the end of the story is that Joash will himself be assassinated by his cabinet members, in effect. But you see in the ministry of Zechariah a man who's faithfully saying that God wants nothing more than for His people to walk in faithfulness to Him. He says in verse number 20, You have forsaken the Lord and He has forsaken you. And that seems like something an Old Testament prophet would say. That's pretty stout, isn't it? 
But really it's just a negative inverse of the great promise of Scripture in James chapter 4, verse number 8, where the Lord said that if we would draw near to God, He would draw near to you. That's all He's saying. He's saying, you walked away from God, so God has walked away from you. But church, hear that great promise this morning. If you would draw near to God, He would draw near to you. So I can't promise you as your pastor that we're going to have great and exciting services here at Sharon Heights Baptist Church. I can't promise you that we're going to see thousands of people saved. I can't promise you that we are going to experience signs and wonders and visions and wheels upon wheels like Ezekiel did. But what I can promise you is that if you will draw near to God, He will draw near to you. And that as He draws near to you, you'll find the reason that you are drawing near to Him is because He was behind the scenes pursuing your heart the whole time. I can promise you that you can have as much of the fullness of God as you want. Because He said it Himself in the Word. God is working to call His people to Himself in this text. And for, I think one of the reasons that revival goes wrong so quickly so many times is that we just forget that God is always good and that God is always faithful. So even though this revival ends badly, even though Joash does not repent and he dies in his sin, the truth is that God is still good and God is still gracious and God is still pursuing him right into the very end. And even if you and I do not experience what we call revival in this place, you know what we do have? We still have a God of grace who loves His people. We still have a God who is pursuing us. We still have the message of the cross that says our true and faithful high priest, just like Zechariah, laid down his life to bring us the truth that we have a high priest who as he died did not say what Zechariah said, may the Lord see and avenge, but our high priest said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. We have the message that our Savior laid down His life so that we could know Him and enjoy Him and love Him. And friend, what I pray you would see this morning is that maybe even this service is God working in some way to call you back to Him to say your relationship with God does not have to be what it has been. But it can be better. It can be more exciting. It can be more enjoyable. You can be closer to God than you have been in years. You can experience His presence in His house in a way that you haven't maybe in decades. You can move past the hurt of the past and you can experience a future that is walking hand in hand with Jesus. So why would you say that? I would say that because this story, I think, proves that God is far more interested in that than we are. That God is the one who wants to see His people walk in faithfulness to Him. And that all really God is calling us to is to live in the awareness of His grace. To live every day in every relationship and every worship service. As we go through our marriages, as we raise our children, as we love our families, as we babysit our grandkids, as we work our job, all that God is expecting us to do is live in the reality of the principle that's displayed in Second Chronicles 24 that God is a God of grace. That's all that God calls us to in life. And if we do that, friends, it's going to look a whole lot like revival. I just don't know. I think we need some of that stuff that Elijah had. You know, we need fire coming down from heaven and we need some she-bears coming in here and consuming some of these people. Maybe we do. But here's what I would submit to you, that when the Bible in the New Testament talks about what being a Christian looks like, at every point it's talking about people who are living in response to the gospel. At every single point it's talking about people who are living gospel-centered 
lives. It's talking about people who have made it the cry of their heart, what Paul said in Galatians 6.14, when he said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I unto the world. So, when the Bible talks about a man loving his family, it says that he should love that family as Christ loved the church. That the gospel of Jesus has changed his heart so much that it changes the way he relates to his family altogether. That he's loving and serving and laying down his life for the good of the object that he loves the way Christ did at the cross. I know some of you ladies would have revival if your husband started doing that. But the Bible also says that you and I, a verse in Ephesians 4.32 I mentioned a few moments ago, that you and I should be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Why should I forgive you? Because it's good for my blood pressure? Why should I forgive you? Because stress is bad for me? Why should I forgive you? I should forgive you because God forgave me in Christ. Amen. And I should be willing to extend that same kind of forgiveness yeah. to you. Yeah. So what is that kind of forgiveness that produces that kind of unity where we experience that kind of love? It's just living as if God really is a God of grace who pursues us. And loves us. Why should we go out into the world and tell people about Jesus? Why do we do that? We do that because God in His grace came to us. And that message should be so big and so captivating and so overwhelming that we can't wait to share it with other people who need it. Why should we pray? We pray the way Jesus taught us to pray to our Father who art in heaven. How is He our Father? He is our Father because we have been adopted through the Son. And the Father has put the Spirit of Christ in us whereby we now cry out and say, I have a Father. That every single thing we are to be and to do as God's people today is a response to the grace of God that is revealed to us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if God's people start living that way, then whatever you call it, I think we could call it revival. And what some of you would need to do today is some of you would need to do what probably Jehoiada did along the way somewhere. You need to come today and say, Lord, regardless of what everybody else does, Lord, I want you to do that in me. I want it to start in me, and I want it to start today. Others of you need to do what Joash should have done. You need to realize where you've gotten off track in your relationship with God. You need to repent, and you need to come back to the Lord and draw near to Him and see Him draw near to you. Others of you maybe are here today, and honestly, you have no idea what any of this revival stuff is even talking about. Maybe you don't need to be revived. Maybe you just need to be revived the first time. Maybe you need to be resurrected. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that all of us in our hearts were just like Joash in 2 Chronicles 24. That even though we were made to worship God, we've all worshipped a million other things. We've worshipped our job. We've worshipped our pleasure. We've worshipped ourselves. And so we're all idolaters who are under the judgment of God. But just as Zechariah the priest gave his life to reach Joash's heart. The Bible says we have a high priest named Jesus who gave his life to forgive us of our sins and to bring us to salvation. But where Zechariah was stoned and killed in the temple and stayed dead, the Bible says that the Lord Jesus was killed outside of Jerusalem and three days later he got up from the ground where they buried him. And he's here today speaking to your heart saying you can have forgiveness, you can have a new life if you'll come and walk away from your sin and walk with me. He's offering that to you today. And for all of us as God's people, if we've experienced that, then we ought to bring every element of our lives, every element of our church, every element of our hearts, every element of our families underneath the reality of that message. If we do that, we'll have revival. Let's stand together today.
while our musicians play, if you need to come today, if I can pray with you, come and grab me by the hand. I'd love to pray with you or find somebody who can. If you have any questions, I'll be happy to talk with you through them. If there's anything that's not clear to you, I'll be around for a little bit this afternoon. I'd be happy to help you in any way that I can. But this altar is open. If you need to come, I'm going to ask you to come and draw near to God. Believe that promise that He'll draw near to you. 